Well, we're still in Genesis, right? So you don't have to turn far. Genesis 22. Genesis 22. You're very familiar with the story. I hope to show it to you with some fresh light this morning. It is a pivotal, absolutely pivotal story in God's meta narrative. The offering up of Isaac on the altar. In fact, to get us situated, I want to just read through the story. So the text won't be on the screen. Follow along in your Bible or just listen to Genesis 22. A little background. At this point, remember, Abraham has waited for the child of promise for... He's a hundred years old when they have uh, Isaac. At this time, though, if you do the math, Isaac is in his early 20s. I know we like to picture him as this little child, this helpless child, but he is a young man and an adult. The coloring sheet even has a picture of what looks like a teenage boy or younger on the back, but he he is much older. And he has gone with his father many times by now, to make sacrifice to God. He knows what's expected and what the ceremony is about. So Genesis chapter 22, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood... But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, 
Behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his, his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because... You have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of the Lord. Remember we said a few weeks ago that if you don't take time to understand the meta-narrative, the whole story of God, and you come to individual stories of God, and you bring your own human understanding, your own wisdom, your own life experience directly to the story, you run the risk of making the story all about you and your little story instead of seeing how it fits into the larger story. And you're in danger of missing the whole point of the story. If we did that today, at best... At best, we might think what the story is telling us is that sometimes God asks us to give up something important, to metaphorically place it on the altar. And we say that, don't we? And we've all heard the sermon preached that way. I've even preached it that way before. It's the way it was originally preached to me. And certainly that is a principle you can take home with you today from the story. That indeed, sometimes God asks us to put things on the altar metaphorically, to be willing to trust God with something that is very important to us. In fact, really, if you think about it all day long, He's asking us to put things on the altar our own will, our own agenda, our own emotions, our own feelings, our own plans. But that's not all of what this story is about. And we tend to run there because we don't live in a culture where we actually sacrifice animals and certainly not people. And so we can't fully put ourselves into the situation. At worst, we might come away from the sermon Maybe, maybe there's an unbeliever here today, and this is the first time you've heard this, or you're a new believer, and you're not familiar with the story, and you're sitting here wondering, am I the only one who has a problem with this story? God wants him to kill his own child, and this is a good thing, and people are shouting praises to this God, and willing to follow a God who says, go and sacrifice your son on the mountain. And they're looking around sheepishly, wondering, why are we excited about this? This is wrong for a God to ask such a thing. The sacrifice is too great. And you start putting yourself in the situation, and you can't bear it, thinking about 
putting one of your own children on the altar and having to kill them. And so you might leave church confused and your faith in God is doubted. I'm not sure I'm going to follow this kind of God if this is what it means to have faith in God. But what I want to do is take the story and put it in the context of the whole meta narrative like we've been doing. And the story starts out, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Test is the important word here. There's a test. And if we don't look back to the first time man was tested, then this test doesn't make much sense. The, the test is too hard to, to willingly sacrifice your own son. And in fact, when you start thinking about the story, you realize that we don't get a lot of details at all about Abraham struggling with this request. He immediately leaves in the morning to go do this thing. Did he talk to his wife? Does she know what he's going to do? Were there tears? We have a children's video series we show sometimes in the Grove made uh, by a company called Nest, and they hired a former Disney animator to, to do these videos. And, and they're, they're pretty well done for the day. They're definitely early 80s, late 70s vintage. Uh, really sappy music meant to really stir up the emotions, and they fill in the blanks. Uh, they take some artistic license in the videos, and Abraham's this little kid with this kind of Oliver Twist voice, you know, where are we going, Daddy? You know, and you're like, oh, this is so sad. I can't imagine. And he says, go hug your mother one last time, you know, and you're like, oh, that's heart-wrenching. We don't get any of that in this story. We're not even encouraged to think that way on purpose. And we'll, we'll see what that purpose is later today. But when we think back to Genesis 3, in the garden, man had a test, a test of faith. When God said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, otherwise you shall die, it's a test. Why do you even put that tree there as a test? Do you trust in God's character that he has provided you paradise and that a relationship with God and a purpose in life to fill the earth and have dominion, to tend the garden? Do you believe that this is sufficient? That this is the best? That I provided you a suitable helper, a companion, woman, provided you marriage and eventually children and, and family? Do you trust that God knows what He's doing? Do you trust that God's Word is truth? When Satan came to tempt man, tempt man to not have faith in God, he tempted in this way. Did God really say, questioning God's Word? Oh, God really did say, okay, but, you know, you won't really die. Okay, we're questioning God's motives and God's trustworthiness. Because God knows on the day that you eat from that tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So, you see, God's holding back. There's more. There's better. And so it's a test of faith. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to trust God? Are you going to 
trust this other voice. And because all the Bible says in Adam died because the first man failed, we have that voice inside all of us as part of our sin nature now. God has revealed himself to us through the word and through the person of Jesus Christ. Trust me. Put your faith in me. Believe in me. There is nothing better than relationship with me. Nothing else matters until you know me. Everything else is temporary. There's nothing permanent. Nothing lasts. Nothing ultimately satisfies unless you know God. Do you believe that? Do you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And that voice inside us says, did he really say that? Does he really mean that? Can he really deliver on that? Are you sure? Because there's lots of things down here that look really good. And I'd like to have it right now, even if God says no, or God says don't make these things ultimate. And so we're all living this test of faith. And the first man indeed failed. He wanted dominion apart from relationship with God. Instead of God's offer, which is, I will be your God and you will be my people, Adam ultimately said, how about I will be my God and we can be God together? Well, it's just not going to work that way. There's only one God. There's one throne and he doesn't share it. And he shouldn't share it, and we really don't want him to give us that throne. God is not giving up on his plan, though. Even though the first man failed, he's not giving up on humanity. He's not giving up on the plan. He cannot be thwarted. He will make good on his plans and his design. He will have a people for himself who trust and love him to have dominion and fill the earth to the glory of God. And he launched that plan, remember, in Genesis 3.15, from the woman's seed, the proto-gospel, the first gospel. From the woman's seed, I will crush Satan's head and Satan will only bruise his heel. And we have been tracing this seed through the Bible. This is the grand plot. There was this tension built. We need the tension released, ultimately. And we find ourselves living in the middle of the story. And we get to Abraham, and God calls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to keep my plan moving through Abraham. He's the next Adam. Where Adam failed, God is grooming Abraham to succeed. He is grooming Abraham's faith. So on that day of the test, he will not fail. And through Abraham, he will make a great nation of believers to fill the earth, multiply, have dominion to the glory of God. Only one problem though, right? Abraham is a man. And he's doomed to fail. But through Abraham, a seed will come. And from that seed, eventually, will be a people who pass the test. This is where the story is heading. 
Really, this is a contrast today of Abraham's faith and God's faithfulness. I say contrast because Abraham's faith isn't as rock solid as we might like to believe. Look at Genesis 15.4, and we'll start by looking at God's faithfulness. At this point, Abraham is doubting God's promise that he's going to make this great nation from Abraham. And Abraham says, well, since I don't have a child, God, you must be talking about my servant, Eliezer. So I don't, I don't, you haven't given me a child. You haven't given me a child. How am I going to have this great nation? And there's an accusatory tone. You haven't given me a child. I'm old. I don't see this happening. So I guess Eliezer must be this child of promise. And we read God's response. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, Abraham, saying, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, your seed. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them, which you're not. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This mustard seed size faith, it's the same promise God had already made to Abraham. And we read in this verse, okay, I, I believe you. It's not going to be my servant. I believe somehow you're going to provide me the son, and I will have all these descendants. That was reckoned to him as righteousness. Not any act he performed, not any act of righteousness, because nobody can live a perfect life, so in God's economy, righteousness must be granted through grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. Did he have the child yet? No, but through faith, he's going to believe God can do this thing, and he, and he will do this thing. And so in a sense, in that moment, he passed the test of faith that the first man did not. And you're like, way to go, Abraham. Solid, rock, solid faith. What a contrast to Adam. But we get to the very next verse... And he said to him, uh, God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So now we've moved on to another one of the promises. So Abraham says, I believe you, God. You're going to provide me this son. And then God says, and I'm also going to give you this land. Now, Abraham has another test of faith. And he says, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Right? Because there's like people living in this land. And I don't think they're just going to hand it over to me. Right? And gee, all the way up till today, they're still not just handing the land over to Israel. In fact, everybody wants to take the land from them. The entire United Nations seems to be bent on removing Israel from the land. So he has doubts. So maybe Abraham doesn't have such rock-solid faith as we'd like to believe. 
And so God does something very wonderful for him. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to make a covenant in the way that you as human beings are accustomed to making covenants. And the reason human beings have to make covenants is because we don't trust one another. I want a contract. I want it in writing. That was the way they made their contracts. We're going to take animals, and you're going to supply some, and I'm going to supply some. We're going to cut them in half, and we're going to walk through the pieces, symbolizing that if you renege on the deal, there's going to be bloodshed. This is serious. And so God says, I'm going to do this covenant with you to help strengthen your faith. God didn't have to do that for Abraham, but God is faithful. And he, he knows it would be wrong for God to make a covenant with a man knowing that man is weak and can't keep up his end of the bargain. So what God does is He puts Abraham to sleep and God Himself passes through the pieces by Himself. So now we know this promise is unconditional. God is going to make good on the Abrahamic covenant no matter, no matter how faithful Abraham is. Because God is going to enact this plan of filling the earth with people to the glory of God to have dominion. A people who love God and trust God. It's just, he can't look down and find that person because he doesn't exist. So God has to use his own power to get us to that place. He even has to give us the faith we need to make good on the plan. So what we're really seeing is God taking Abraham's little faith and cultivating it and cultivating it and cultivating it. So by the time we get to our story today, Abraham's faith is rock solid. It'd be wrong to forget that Abraham has history with God. He's lived a lot of life walking with God. Ups and downs and disappointments, trials. If you're here today as a brand new Christian and you have mustard seed faith, faith in Jesus Christ is all it takes to be saved and be in the family of God. Amen? Amen. But He doesn't leave you there. He matures your faith. And the only way He can mature your faith is through trials, suffering, Difficult decisions, difficult situations. By the way, you're going to have those anyways, with or without God. Much better to have them with God, because now there's purpose behind your suffering. Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I see the land, God. How do I know I'm really going to possess it? Because of God's faithfulness. I promised and I don't renege on my promises. Hebrews 11.8 goes on to say, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going at first. God said, Leave. So he left. 
By faith he lived as an alien, a foreigner in the land of promise. This is difficult. Okay, you say I'm going to inherit this land, but there are already people living here. I'm a foreigner. And they're powerful people. I can't just take it by force. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and eventually Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Spoiler alert, that's, that's where the sermon is going to end up. That Abraham ultimately had his eyes focused on something beyond this life. Yes, God did eventually bring him into the land, but he taught Abraham that there's something better than life here. There's a heavenly city. And that ultimately was the thing that Abraham became the object of his faith. Yes, can God provide me this heavenly city that I've never seen with my own eyes? And it's the same test all of us have. Is there really something better than life here on earth? Yes, there is. There's an eternal city lit up day and night by the glory of God where we can see Him face to face. What about Sarah? Sarah also had her doubts. Genesis 16.1 Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Where have we heard that line before? That's Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3.17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So we have Abraham reliving the test where Adam failed. And you see these parallels between the tests. Uh, a parallel. A promised land, a place to live and to work and to cultivate the land was promised to Abraham. A promised land, the Garden of Eden, a paradise, a place to live and cultivate the land and have dominion promised to Adam. Adam was tempted to believe there was something better than what he already had and his wife was complicit in that temptation and he listened to the voice of his wife. And God promised Abraham a son from his own seed. And he had some doubts, but then God reassured him and he said, okay, I believe you, God. You are going to provide me a son by my own seed. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And years later, he starts to doubt again. And he says, well, if if I go in with my wife's maidservant, like she suggested, and is very common in the Middle East society he lived in in that day, it would still be my seed, right? Still his seed. So this sounds like a great plan. He gets tired of waiting on the Lord. He starts to have doubts. And Ishmael's born, but he's not the child of promise. And like with Adam, where God curses the ground, 
There is a sort of curse that comes with this lack of faith. Ishmael becomes the father of all of Israel's enemies, eventually. Talk about consequences. Have you ever suffered the consequences of your lack of faith? You went ahead on your own and did things your own way, and you thought that would be the solution to your problems, and it only created more problems. Can you identify with Adam and Eve, Sarah and Abraham? Now you, you can because you're looking at the whole meta narrative. Instead of just looking at them individually ripped out of the pages of the Bible and then replacing yourself in their shoes, you see how important it is to understand the flow of, of the story. Are not each of us living out Genesis 3 over and over and over again in our lives? Both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the idea of having a child. That's why God said to name Isaac, he laughs, to remind them of their unbelief. By faith, though, it says in Hebrews 11, 11, we do, we do get to see that eventually Sarah did have faith. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. That's putting it lightly, right? Past the age. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. How can she have that kind of faith? Well, when you look at yourself... You can have faith according to your pride, but eventually we all fail. And faith in self is eroded, which is a good thing. It's a good thing for faith in ourselves to erode. She had faith because she considered him faithful who had promised, if this is going to happen, God is going to have to make this happen. And it says, therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, we're talking about Abraham, He's so old when it comes to bearing children, having children, he's as good as dead. We're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So from a dead man, God brings life and life to many. Gee, who does that sound like? Our Savior. As Apostle Paul said, through Adam, through one man, death entered the world and, and to all. In the same way, life came to all through one man, through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. We're connecting all the dots here. We say, wow, whoever wrote this book must have known how all the history was going to work together for all ages. Amen. That is God the author of this book. There's no humanly way human writers could have put this story together and have it work out so perfectly. Abraham also doubted God's decision to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Another test. Remember when God came in the uh, theophany? He came as a person, cloaked as a person, with two other angels. We talked about that last week. And met with Abraham under the tree, and Abraham served them a meal. 
And he told them again, I'm going to give you a child. At this time, they hadn't had Isaac yet. And outside the tent, you hear Sarah laugh. And he says, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. And he says, yes, you did. Well, while he was down there, while God was down in the form of this theophany, he said to the angels, we should let Abraham know what we're about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they tell him, and this is what Abraham says. It says, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham came near him and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. God, I, I, I need my God to be just, to be perfectly just. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge, capital J, of all the earth deal justly? He's, he has a crisis of faith, and we have the same crisis of faith when it comes to God as judge. Or when it comes to the problem of evil in the world, right? I, I know God is all good. I know He's all powerful. So why does He allow people to suffer? Why does He allow evil? Maybe He's not powerful enough to do anything about it. No, I can't have a God who's not all powerful. Well, maybe He's not all good. Far be it from you to not be all good. Do you, do you hear this problem, this crisis of faith? Theologians have a word for it. They call it theodicy. Theodicy, the justification of God. Having to defend God's honor. God doesn't need His honor defended. He is good. He's the definition of good. We don't define good and then look at God and go, yes, good, definitely. We would call Him good. No, He is good. He's the definition of good. His essence is good. Things are good because He determines them to be good. That's what makes them good. We can trust that God perfectly judges. And so, Abraham is grappling with, can I trust a God who would wipe out an entire city? What if there's good people down there? Look at all those instances Just the ones the Bible records of Abraham struggling with this faith. How do I know, God? How do I know? How do I know I can trust you? How do I know these things are really going to happen? How do I know I'm going to take the land? How do I know I'm going to have a son? I'm really old. My wife's old. See, easy to say I believe all the right theology about God, harder to believe it in your heart and act on it accordingly. So when we get to Genesis 22.1, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and he's ready to give Abraham the ultimate test. This child that I gave you, 
that you've waited so long for, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice him up. And there's absolutely no dramatic tension here in the story because we get the impression right away, and all the commentators agree on this, that it's pretty clear that he's not actually going to have to kill his son. That's why he doesn't talk to his wife about it. That's why there isn't all this story about him uh, having anguish over what he's being asked to do. You know, three days of thinking about how I'm going to, to pull this thing off. It's actually quite perfunctory. I've got the wood, I've got the donkey, I've got the fire, we're going up. And he tells the servants, we'll be back down after we worship. Dad, where is the lamb? God himself will provide a lamb, son. Because God has demonstrated himself so faithful to Abraham over the years that, God, that Abraham's faith is now ready to say, I trust God, even with this. Even with this. Now, I'm thankful God doesn't ask us to start there. He brings our faith along to that place. Abraham, Abraham demonstrated his faith through his obedience. Genesis twenty two twelve. Let's read that part again. He said, "God said, do not." Or the angel of the Lord said, "Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For now, I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me." Now, let me say here that this doesn't mean that God learns something new. It sure sounds that way. But how does God, who is infinite and not bound by time and knows past, present, and future perfectly at all times, relate to finite human beings? Can we, can we rise to His level and understand things, or does He have to condescend down to our level? He condescends. He stoops and uses language we understand. Oh, now I know you really have faith, Abraham. Really, he could have said, Abraham, now you know that you really have faith. Now you know. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he reiterates the Abrahamic covenant. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Faith has to be coupled with obedience to be true faith. Faith has to be coupled with obedience to be true faith. Easy to say, I have faith, but as we learned earlier in the year from James, faith without works is dead. No confidence in that kind of faith. In fact, James points to this very passage as his example. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified or vindicated by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or matured, I think is a better translation of that word. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified or vindicated 
by works and not by faith alone. We are saved by grace through faith for good works. If you say, I'm saved by grace through faith, and you have no works of obedience and trust in your life, then I'm not sure that is saving faith. If I say, I believe this chair will hold up my weight if I sit in it, and then refuse to ever sit in it, that's a hollow faith. You sat down in your chairs without even thinking. You had faith in your chairs this morning. James goes on to say, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And I think we can even take this into the realm of love. Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Yes, I do. Easy to say, I love you. And our culture is great at saying, I love you. All of our music and our greeting cards, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I don't know about you, but when I look around, I don't see a lot of biblical love in our culture anymore. It's quite rare. Everybody's saying I love you, but I don't see a demonstration of love. Show me your love without works, and I will show you my love by my works. I will show you my love by my works. Sacrificial love sacrifices. Remember when Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus rises from the dead and Peter returns to his fishing and and Jesus meets Peter and Peter jumps in the water, swims to shore and Jesus says, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. Stop fishing. Yeah, but Lord, I'm good at fishing. I know how to fish. I don't fail at this. Feeding your sheep is hard. They don't want to listen all the time, and and they bite. And they run off, and you have to go chase them, and they don't always like you chasing them down. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Tend my lambs. Three times Peter says, I love you, and and Jesus' response is, now show me. Show me you love me by trusting me. Show me you love me by trusting me. Talk is cheap if it doesn't come from the heart. If you truly believe what you confess, your actions will follow. If you truly believe what you confess, your actions will follow. Abraham's faith was grounded in God's faithfulness. That's why he was able to do this. Abraham, in his own strength, could not offer his son up on the altar. Abraham trusted that God would provide a substitute. He was convinced in God's goodness and in his mercy. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And he must have convinced his son to the point where his son allowed himself to be bound and laid on the altar, even with dad holding the knife above his head. Hebrews 11, 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, when he was tested, that's the key, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, it wouldn't make any sense without faith in God. 
Here God provided me this son and went out of his way to demonstrate to me that this is the son of promise. Not Ishmael, not Eliezer, Isaac. So why would God make this promise, go out of his way to give me a son and then turn around and say, never mind, get rid of him? He considered that God was able, even if he said go through with it, to raise him from the dead. That's how rock solid his faith was. Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac isn't married yet. Isaac hasn't had any children. So if my seed's going to be multiplied, it's got to be Isaac. I believe God. I trust him. So even if I do have to kill him, God will raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Right? In his mind, if God said, you're going to have to kill your son, it's as if my son is dead to me. And when God stayed his hand, it's like he received his son back from the dead. So then, if God is testing our faith and he's looking for faith, then what does he want us to believe? What does he want us to do to demonstrate that we really do trust him? Where, where do we succeed where the first Adam failed? There's over 200 verses in the New Testament that tell us what he wants us to believe, where he wants us to place our faith. And they all say the same thing. Place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Is your faith in the person of Jesus Christ this morning? If you can't answer yes, then you can't pass the test. Are you trusting in your good works? You fail. Are you trusting in your own cleverness? You fail. Trusting in your good looks, your family history, the size of your tithe, you fail the test. Because eventually, that pride will crumble. And you can't put your faith in those things anymore. And you need something that can't be taken away from you. And that is Jesus Christ. John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This new birth, by placing your faith in Jesus, is from God. It can't be taken away from you. John 14.1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus said that to his apostles the night before before he was to die. Believe in God, believe also in me. Believing in Jesus is believing in God. Believing in God is believing in Jesus. I and the Father are one, he said. Show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he said. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the meta-narrative, the whole story, the whole, the whole ball of wax, everything God's revealed, the gospel, it is the, in it is the righteousness of God. It's a righteousness that isn't ours. It's a righteousness of God. It's God's righteousness that is given to us by faith in God. It's revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Abraham ultimately was believing in Christ. Now, faith is believing in things unseen, the assurance of things hoped for, right? How do we know this? How do we know Abraham was placing his faith in Christ? This is how Old Testament saints got saved. They put their faith in Christ before they even knew who Christ was. In New Testament saints, we put our faith in Christ because he's come in the flesh and revealed himself to us. You say, well, how did people get saved before there were Jesus. They put their faith in Jesus. John 8, 51 and following, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon, because Abraham died, and the prophets also died. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. And they're thinking about this passage we read this morning. Abraham kept God's word. He passed the test, but he died. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, using the name of God for himself. Now, how is it that Abraham saw Jesus before Jesus came? This was the promise. This is the promised son. This is the one, ultimately, who has perfect faith in the Father. Jesus is going to be victorious where Adam failed, where Noah failed, where Abraham failed. Eventually, one would come who's human, who's a man, but God. And God cannot fail. And Abraham understood this in, to whatever degree God allowed him to understand. And we then begin to see that Genesis 22 isn't really so much about Abraham. It's about Jesus Christ. Abraham is a type of God. He foreshadows what God was going to do. And Isaac, the promised son, is a type of Christ. The perfect sacrifice, a willing sacrifice. Isaac carried the wood up to the altar. Jesus carried the wood to the altar. Mount Moriah is where the temple was built and where Jesus was crucified. On that very mountain that Abraham sacrificed his son. Except, in this case, no substitute would be provided. Nobody to stay God's hand and say, do not touch the lad. God would sacrifice his own son, so we wouldn't ever have to do such a thing to please God.
Many theologians, and myself included, believe that the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord was Christ before he came in human flesh. The Bible talks a lot about angels in the Old Testament. And it will either say an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. And after Jesus comes in the flesh, we see lots of an angel of the Lord, but we never again see reference to the angel of the Lord. It may very well be that that was the pre-incarnate Christ saying, do not touch the lad. God will provide a sacrifice. And Abraham saw that day, saw Jesus and rejoiced in it. That could very well be ultimately what Jesus was talking about when he said, Abraham saw me. The amazing thing about this story is that it all, it's all about Jesus, and it was written 1800, well, it happened 1,800 years before he actually would come and die on the cross. And the parallels are so perfect. You can't make this up. You would almost think that somebody went back after Jesus died and wrote Genesis 22. And I'm sure we could find, drum up some liberal theologians at liberal seminaries who say that's probably what happened. But we know, we know that's not the case. By believing in Christ, we become victorious where the first man failed. Okay, so you're connecting the dots. Adam had a test. He failed. And God said, I'm not giving up on my plan. I am going to make a people who love me, who trust me, who have faith in me, and will have dominion to my glory. Except each successive generation, each hero of the faith, failed in their own way. And with Abraham, he said, okay, I'm starting over with Abraham. And from Abraham, I'm going to bring a seed. And we're going to make this thing happen eventually. But even in this scene, it's not so much Abraham's faith that it should be held up high for us all to see. It should be God's faithfulness. That is the point of the story. God's faithfulness is where to put your focus this morning. Not, will I pass the test? Will I pass the test? Will I pass the test? The point is, since Jesus passed the test perfectly, you and I don't have to pass it perfectly. In and through Christ, we pass the test through faith in Christ and what He did. Hebrews 11.6, And without faith, it is impossible to please God him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How do we seek him? Through faith in Christ. And what are we believing? That he will reward that. What is the reward? Eternal life. You seek God, the reward is you get God. And your faith needs to be to a place this morning where you could say with all your heart, that is the best thing. Nothing else I get here on this earth matters until I have God. Like Paul said, to live, Christ. To live is Christ. No Christ, no life. 
I don't know what it is that you're clamoring after this morning, what you think you need that you don't have that's going to make your life better, that's going to make you happy, that's going to make you satisfied. And if, but if the answer isn't Christ, you're filling in the blank with the wrong things. When we have Christ, we pass the test because He passed the test. The test. He is faithful. And with Hebrews 11.13, these, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all died in faith, not having received all the things that were promised. But that's okay, because they all, they all understood what? That those were the temporary fulfillment. The, the ultimate fulfillment is what they really wanted. Having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were just strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Look, if they were putting their focus on the, on the earthly fulfillment of the promises, then they would have clung to the things of this earth. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. How is your faith this morning? How is your faith? Is it settled on the rock-solid person and work of Jesus Christ? If it is, then all the trials God brings into your life is only for the purpose of strengthening your faith. He doesn't want you to fail. But without Christ, you will fail the test. If you put confidence in yourself and in the flesh, you'll fail. If your faith is in Christ, He's already won. He's already been perfectly obedient. He's already offered Himself up as a sacrifice, and God has accepted his sacrifice. You say you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, how do you demonstrate that love is real? Through faith and obedience to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, increase our faith. Diminish doubt. Fix our gaze on Jesus Christ and Him alone and His beauty, His majesty, His glory, His sacrifice. Forgive us of our unfaithfulness, Lord, how easily we put our trust in things of this world that are just passing away. Renew us and clean the grime off of our spiritual glasses so we can see clearly like Abraham eventually saw the day of Christ. And so then, like Abraham, and only then, when you ask us to do what seems impossible, we have the faith to do it because it's possible with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, you're dismissed.